The Winter of Listening by David White. No one but me by the fire, my hands burning red in the palms, while the night wind carries everything away outside. All this petty worry, while the great cloak of the sky grows dark and intense round every living thing. What is precious inside us does not care to be known by the mind in ways that diminish its presence. What we strive for in perfection is not what turns us into the lit angel we desire. What disturbs and then nourishes has everything we need. What we hate in ourselves is what we cannot know in ourselves. But what is true to the pattern does not need to be explained. Inside everyone is a great shout of joy waiting to be born. Even with the summer so far off, I feel it grown in me now and ready to arrive in the world. All those years listening to those who had nothing to say. All those years forgetting how everything has its own voice to make itself heard. All those years forgetting how easily you can belong to everything simply by listening. And the slow difficulty of remembering how everything is born from the opposite and miraculous otherness. Silence and winter has led me to that otherness. So let this winter of listening be enough for the new life I must now call my own. Okay, good. So welcome everyone. This is um, continuing. A continuation of the theme uh, that we have been speaking about and will continue to speak out about for most of the year. We're having some 20 talks on the 10 paramis and really exploring these beautiful inroads uh, to spaciousness. I, I love it, you know, that when we can relax into our true nature, it brings us into an open space. Can you feel that? Can you get to get a sense of it sometimes? Perhaps in moments in which you are sitting or maybe in moments of quietude in the day when there isn't a pressure upon us. There is this relaxed receptivity of, and just in which uh, life is available in a way that it may not be. And there's an access to it and a, and beyond, there's an abundance. Uh, and so the interfacing uh, with ourselves isn't so contracted, isn't so kind of um, uh, contained. It's not uh, superficial. Uh, and it, it just, it, it's uh, open and expansive. And I think that each of these paramis bring us into that open space beautifully 
Uh, and if and when we incline our mind towards each of these paramis, we are faced with that open space and often with the contracted residue that keeps us kind of bound or hesitant or um, untrusting of that open space. And so our defenses become very activated when we bring and, uh, and start looking and investigating these paramis. And for instance, uh, the parami of generosity uh, is, an, uh, is a parami of abundance, which is wide open, vast, vastness. It's not a contracted, selfish pose, but one in which there is the beauty of, of access in, in the fields of plenty. And so uh, what happens to the sense of me when it opens comes into that open field is it it feels uh, like it's losing some of its power so it contracts and tries to get gain gain some moderation to that abundance and say okay well wait a minute now you know I, I'll give a dollar but don't ask me to give two and, you know and I'll I'll look you in the eye but don't I'm not going to get, converse with you or there's some limitation some way that we keep containing ourselves within this abundance and Yet the parami is open-ended, right? So we have to look at where it is that we draw the line. Where is it that we feel the need for the boundary? It's not right or wrong to have a boundary. We just are investigating our need for it. And whether it's a fear-based boundary, uh, whether there's a tension-filled boundary there, or whether we can say no, because there is a no to every abundance, right? You can't give away your house and turn over your... There's a no, but does that no come from contraction or love? Because there can be a no of love that isn't, doesn't set a boundary. It's not self-protected. And we've talked about that in the past and we'll talk about that in future talks, but it's very important to just to get a sense of this field that we're extending ourselves and opening ourselves up to. And then we moved into sila, uh, virtue. And sila, in its very orientation, uh, is the consideration of others, isn't it? Consideration of life first before my own selfish needs. So I don't take things. And all of the different precepts or ways that we form virtue or just integrity itself really sets us up not as what I can get and master and control in life, but whether there can be this flow, this communion with life in which uh, there is a consideration for my own needs, but also for the needs of the earth, life itself on the earth, and that movement and flow of that. So again, Our boundaries are being tested. Our boundaries are being challenged. We have to question those boundaries and say, well, you know, how much are we ruled by our selfish behavior and how much are we ruled by the willingness to let others live as we so wish to live? And then we moved into renunciation. And renunciation is an interesting one. It's like... uh, Once we understand the true orientation to that word we begin to see that renunciation is no more than releasing 
uh, what is unneeded in our life. And much of it just falls away uh, through um, uh, just a change of direction and posture in our life. Much of what had interest us before no longer interests us, and that's just a, a sloughing away of certain uh, material uh, needs. Uh, but there's also a deeper level of renunciation, which I hope we all understood in the course of those talks, and that is that it's really the release of of those things which have been falsely um, idolized. Uh, like much of the conversation, the inward conversation that we give to ourselves, much of our storyline, our narrative, our commentary about life, when it's really examined, when we look at it, isn't needed. It's not needed because uh, it's um, excessive so much as it's not needed because it simply isn't a true recounting of the situation of reality. And when we see that, when we see that much of what we say to ourselves is a projection of the fear and desire and, and contraction of our sense of egoic sense, then we no longer need the bylines, those storylines to govern our life. And we start renouncing the need to think our way through life. We see that that isn't necessary. And that, again, brings us into a challenging space within ourselves in which the egoic threshold, where the, the ego depends upon a storyline for its salvation, for its nurturement. And if we're going to open to renunciation, we're going to have a moment of crisis where the ego refuses to renounce because its survival is at stake in maintaining uh, its narrative. And so each of these paramis, when we incline our mind towards them, sets up um, a, uh, a line in which uh, there is some degree of tension between what the expression of the parami is and where we're willing to go within that parami. So I'm hoping we're using it that way because we should feel challenged. Unless we fill the rub, how will we know where we're stuck? You see, that's what life has to offer us. And many of us don't really interpret life in, in the right context. When there is a rub in life, when we're in pain, when we're in contraction to life, that is where life is taking us where we refuse to go voluntarily. And so instead of looking at that particular boundary with some degree of discernment, we recoil in further uh, angst and agony over that boundary and come back into greater contraction. But what the, what the boundary's true uh, definition is, is let's, let's look at this thing. Let's see if there's something that is being added that creates this struggle that need not be there. Let's see if there is a surrender that can occur which no longer forms this battlefield of tension. And so we, we want, sort of, not masochistically, but the intention in each of our lives as we begin to grow is to look, to really seek out 
the new unexplored area, which is where we are uh, in conflict, where we're in struggle, where we're in argument with life, and to seek those areas out in, with intentionality. Because our whole spiritual growth depends upon that. Or we, in some cases, stay within the refined qualities of the serenity and calmness that we love and we try to hold on to those. This is the inappropriate way to use our spiritual lives. So that we just we don't challenge ourselves. We don't stay at the at the boundary. We come back into the safe pasture land of where we are comfortable, where we're at ease with ourselves, and try to cultivate only what is easy, what is quiet, what is serene, what is peaceful. And anything that disturbs us, we try to refine our environment to exclude that that distraction. Right? Now that's the wrong way. It feels right. Inside it might feel right, doesn't it? It's just I'm getting more serene. We're also getting more stubborn. (laughs) More arrogant. You see how, how the allure of these beautiful states of mind that we may not have had access to up until now can act as a detriment to this single purpose of challenging ourselves and keeping this thing growing and moving. I have found, in many cases, that we're very good at keeping ourselves corralled but not moving outside of those fence posts because we don't like what we see about ourselves when we are so challenged. It doesn't look good. doesn't look nice. looks really nice if I stay in my serenity and I just try to keep everything so maintained that I never get disturbed. Looks really nice inside there. Looks beautiful. Looks looks like a like a crystal chandelier shop. You know, everything is just shiny and bright and twinkly. But I like the bull in there. Let the bull in. Start knocking this thing around a little bit. You have to have you have to understand where I'm coming from. You know, so let's go. Let's go with this. And yes, we don't like what we see, but do you think that what we see is going to go away within that serenity? Forget it, it's not. It's going to be there the first time somebody honks their horn at you or won't let you in their lane of traffic. Where's your meditation in that moment? Where's Miss Serenity in that moment? So these parmies are all about wisdom. These parmies are all about the growth of our throwing that threshold, throwing ourselves up against what we are unaccustomed to and finding the fluidity and abundance that the parmies are pointing to within that contraction. And that's why more and more I'm finding that we have to get off the cushion in order to be challenged in such a way. I mean, you may have, you may find the perfect time of day so that there's no noise outside, the hongs aren't honking, horns aren't honking, and your neighbor's not up yet, and the dog's not barking, you know. It's great. But what about 2 p.m. when everything is, you know, the kettle's going off and you're 
children are, and all and on and on. And we have to get up off the cushion with that same determination to extend our wisdom into those areas and not stay contracted and contrived within our idealized spiritual thresholds. And we will be challenged along those ways every step. Every step. Because what we really learn, yearn for, many of us, is not to be challenged and to have to face the ugly side of ourselves, but to be soothed, to get away from it all, to have a mental vacation from discomfort so that we don't have to face what we know to be ugly in there. Right? Well, that's why we have to first look at that ugliness and prove to us that it's not what we have feared it to be. That it isn't what we, the torturous sense of me, the terrorized, the little terror kid, child that's in there. That all of this manifestation of our childhood screams, all of that remains hidden. But let's look at this with a loving heart. Let us accept this these different sides of ourselves with a loving heart. And then when we are looking at the boundary that's imposed and that ugly scream arises, we won't be so shocked by it. We've seen it before. We've seen everything of the mind. And so we can step forward into this. We can move forward into this. Move forward into generosity. Move forward into virtue. Move forward into renunciation. And all of that moving forward is the accessing of wisdom in our life. So what do we mean when we say wise? See? Do we mean an intellectual understanding? Many of us bring a great deal of devotion to the cathedrals of our time, which are universities. But in truth, the intellect, although extraordinarily powerful and having purpose here, there's no question, doesn't access wisdom. How is wisdom different than intellectual uh, acuity? What do we mean when we say wise? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's very old. I remember especially when I was young, my grandmother, I had the opportunity and I just remember seeing all the wrinkles. And just, and then she was born in the uh, 19th century. And so I, I wanted to, I wanted to know what it was like. She had seen the birth of the, you know, the airplane and God knows what else. And so I remember having this conversation and what I was really looking for was some sense of perspective of it all. And even at a young age, I wanted some sense of how, what it was like to have lived through time and whether living through time did something for her that me and my youth, 
it hadn't done yet. And so we look for wisdom. We, that need to find a source of perspective of things is one search for wisdom. And aging, there is a wisdom of aging. Just having gone through experience after experience after experience in our lives and the ups and downs and the swings and the havings and the losings and the gainings and the la- la- all of it. There's a, certain, uh, there's a certain way that the experiences of life tone us or can tone us into a kind of settledness. And some people of age have that very nicely because they've kept their eyes open, basically, through those different events. And then there are others who have closed their eyes to those events or have been so bitter and blaming from and about those events that you feel this growing sense of anger and anguish. And you begin to see how it is that we can live in accordance with wisdom so that aging itself can provide that. Because at this point, it's interesting, I don't know whether the aging process, just having lived 62 years, has meant more for the wisdom that I have garnered or the meditation. Because both of those things, both of those things have really focused in on just keeping my eyes open, seeing what it's like to live in the ups and downs of life. So one experience of wisdom is through just the aging process. A second one is the wisdom that is offered in suffering and having gone through particular difficult periods in our life, even if we are young, which have seasoned sometimes the very young. I remember uh, in hospice care working with, I think she was either 10 or 12 years old with cancer. She had been... Uh, she had had cancer about half her life and when I met her in the hospice program she was very close to the end of her life and she just when I was sitting with her I, I could have been sitting with a 70 year old in wisdom not in youthful expression because she'd be off playing with her dolls and doing other things when she wasn't engaged but I could engage her around the deepest topics and she was right there just right, and she understood completely. And she would talk effortlessly about her death, and she would talk about her preparation for that. She would. There's just this ease that belied her youth. And I saw that this five years of cancer treatment had honed her wisdom in a certain way that, for many of us, we never access that degree of wisdom. We never have. We never have the setup. And I began to realize that in many ways, knowing when you're terminally ill and having some prognosis in which you can live that terminal illness is a, is a grace, is a period of time in which we can lose ourselves in the fear and anxiety of what's going to happen, or you can begin to really use the time and preciousness 
because you can't project or postpone your life, there's a kind of way that you fully show up for your life that is very different for a terminally ill patient than for most of us. And so the wisdom of suffering, the wisdom of having gone through many of the situations that we have gone through. And if we look retroactively at what those periods of time, those difficulties did for us, many of us would say we really grew most during those times. There's a, uh, on Robert Kennedy's uh, gravestone, there's the epitaph, uh, is a um, quotation from Aeschylus, a Greek philosopher, and it says, uh, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. When, when there is just pain, when there is just this enormous burden of our, of our suffering, that often against our will, against our determination, against the growing sense of despair and anguish, even then, drop by drop can come this wisdom. Somehow it seeps or can seep through. And so we begin to see that those periods of time that challenge us the most often hold the greatest potential for our growth. So too does the moment of death because it often holds the greatest anguish, there is the greatest potential. That which holds the greatest fear proportionally holds the, great, the same degree of growth. So you can imagine what that moment of death might be like for us if we so take it on. So facing the difficult is really the environment in which wisdom unfolds. So there's the wisdom of aging. There's the wisdom of suffering. There's the wisdom from contemplation. And this is one that I don't think this particular form of practice really invests enough in. But the sense of contemplation, of just seeing how life is for others besides ourselves. This general sense of just watching how people live their lives. It's not as if we have to go through every single difficulty ourselves in order to learn. You can see it very obviously how other people are going through it. You can see the pain. You can see the contention that their life is being held by. And this sense of just being able to look out with awareness and seeing the laws of life and how people disobey those laws of life. And I'm not talking about the cultural laws, I'm talking about the central laws, the way life is formed, the, that life is formed around impermanence, around change, around that nothing can be held on to, and that people are constantly trying to reformulate those laws to their own uh, best interest, and how when they do so, there is an enormous fallout in terms of their anguish and, and suffering. And just to see that, just to be aware of that, brings us all the time, makes us tuned to the wisdom element in life itself. 
So there's the wisdom of aging. There's the wisdom from pain and suffering. And there's the wisdom from contemplation. And there's the wisdom from meditation. Now let me just speak a moment or two about wisdom from meditation because meditation really attempts to speed the whole process up because it creates a, the right wise environment for, for wisdom to uh, occur. And what is that environment? That environment is one in which the inward sense is not being held within desire and fear, that there's no judgment about what's going on, that we're not seeing through the distorted lens of what we want. We're trying to see what is actually there in front of our eyes, free of the judgment and ideas that we bring to that perception. And when we do that, we're accessing wisdom directly. We're tuning in to the inherent intelligence, listen closely, in presence. Presence, awareness, has an inherent intelligence. And if you're ever fully aware, if you ever just are just without a lot of thoughts, without a lot of, of, um, of storyline accompanying that awareness, if we just have a moment in which attention is flourishing, you, feel, you don't feel deprived. There's no sense of deprivation. There's no sense of, of having lost our knowledge base, which is not there in the same way it is with our intellect is in governance. But there's no, and there's, but there's no sense of, of being um, disconnected from or not uh, having a full understanding of. And at the same time, the knowledge is not there. And when we're sitting, what we're doing is allowing that inherent state of presence, awareness, to show itself, to reveal itself. And we are not bringing a judgmental focus to the experience that is arising within that awareness. We're not bringing a distorted perception to that experience. We're just letting the experience arise within the field of attention, presence, awareness. So it's being held, being held by something that is much more vast than the mind's constant need to interpret or to talk about. And when we see at that level of quietude, because at that level stillness is seen, we are not seeing. Understand that. That in every moment, it is stillness that sees from your eyes. And you just claim reference for it. You just own it. It's like you're owning the sky. It's my sky. But that's what's actually occurring. And when the sense of self, through its need commentary, which is the only way the sense of self can know itself, is through the commentary that is constantly lacing our mind, moving through it, when it's quiet, then that space itself is filled with a vastness that sees. 
by its nature, its quality is to see. It sees. That's its quality. That's what awareness does, is that it cognizes, it knows. And so, that is where wisdom arises. Wisdom is the inherent intelligence, the inherent seeing in presence. Free of distortion. Free of the mind's constant neediness or fearing. It's life knowing itself. Now, I want to many of us early on in the meditation see through the mind to whatever it is that we're experiencing. We look through the states of mind that might be arising. It might be impatience or it could be um, any state of mind. It could be desire. It could be fear. We look through those glasses of distortion and we look at the mind and the experiences that are occurring, the emotions that are arising through a kind of preordained way of looking. As the practice uh, moves uh, and uh, we, get, we become more experienced in practice, we start seeing the mind itself. We aren't seeing through the mind, we are seeing the mind. Now, I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. But let me just give you an example of looking at the breath and having this whole commentary about the breath in which the breath, I'm doing a good job now. See, we're see, when we're looking at that level in which we're evaluating and judging and seeing how we're doing on the breath and comparing how we had just been with the breath or the last meditation we were on the breath, we are looking through the mind at the breath with all the judgments in place and all of the ways that we opinionate and all our attitudes are well in place and we're looking through all of that at the breath and that noise stays in place as we try to perceive the breath. Now, there's a in growth as we become quieter in ourself, we at some point begin to see the entire mind as it's moving And so we're looking at the entire mind. We're looking at the attitudes that are arising. We're not seeing those attitudes as an identifying part of what we're seeing. We're seeing the attitudes separate within the scene. We're seeing the need to judge separate. We're seeing the opinions we have, the noise, the conversation that's occurring. All of that is being seen by the awareness that holds the mind. And at that point, we're no longer seeing through the mind We're seeing the mind. And that's where we're we're moving in this meditation. We're moving towards a greater expanse, a greater openness, in which the mind is no longer interpreting what we see, but the very sense of interpretation is being seen by the awareness that holds it. Does that make sense? So, such a mind then is free of the desire and fear that normally de- de- uh, establishes the relationships that we have to objects. And so then that is a mind based in wisdom. 
when we are looking through the mind with all of its colorations and attitudes and not understanding those attitudes as being part of the mind, then we're seen from ignorance. Do you see the difference? How then do we master a wise mind? Is that we get out of the way. We just get quiet. The quieter we become, the less egoic place we have within this whole thing. The quieter we become, the more expansive the awareness. The more expansive the awareness, the more complete the picture is seen. And it's no longer behind the scenes driving the observation. In classical Buddhism, it's talked about in these words. And I want to just expose you to the classical Buddhist terminology so that they're not foreign to you. In classical Buddhism, consciousness is the direct cognizing of an object, knowing a sight, knowing a sound. So we hear a sound, the sound is heard, and then we think, oh, that's a bird. And there's the knowing that of the sound and then there's the knowing of the thought that says that that's a bird that labels that sound. So the mind that may be clouded by mental factors, the mind is in obscures that scene, just as I mentioned. There could be the hindrances, I'm sleepy, I'm tired, and then I don't want to listen to the bird, forget the bird, I'm tired about that. All A mind that's clouded with a lot of mental factors and full of its own prejudice is a mind Deluded with ignorance. A mind that is clear and which those mental factors are no longer being identified with is a mind based in wisdom. So it's important for us to get a sense of what these two different qualities, a mind of ignorance, with all of my prejudice, my ideas, my opinions, or a mind of wisdom that is quiet and is seeing everything that's arising, seeing the states of mind themselves that arise. Now, the, the fact is that although ignorance is a strong habit, it is not intrinsic to the mind itself. These states of mind are, are guests within consciousness. They come and they go. What is intrinsic to the mind itself is this spacious awareness. So if we divest our identification with the different states of mind as they come and just let them pass, what we open to is the spaciousness of the awareness, the intrinsic, natural quality of the mind. So meditation then is uncovering this radiance, this radiance of mind. I don't want to make this too complicated, but I just want us to go a little further into what this natural sense of radiance, this natural sense of awareness that is always here, that to access this, all we have to do is to relax into it. We don't have to bring something to make it happen. If we bring something to make it happen, we're conjuring up a state of mind in order to see what is naturally intrinsically there, which doesn't make any sense at all. What we have to do is release the need to invest 
in any state of mind, and then we will fall back into what is already organically available. The stronger the sense of me, the more the identification in the state of mind, and the less there is available or access this natural quality of attention or awareness. Because what is the sense of I? The sense of I is the noise that buffers ourselves from the stillness, which is that natural radiant quality. And so the more we're invested in me, the more distant we are from that natural stillness. So meditation really is to come back into the stillness and release the need to be ourselves. Now that sounds a little scary until you realize that everything that we so long for and desire in ourselves is intrinsic to that natural awareness. Love. All the paramis. All of the paramis we're talking about are attributes of that intrinsic stillness. Not of me. We interrupt that. We interfere with that. We limit it. And so as we begin to understand that what we really want in this journey called spiritual growth is these vast fields that we are exposing in ourselves like generosity and virtue and renunciation and wisdom. And that those are accessible, the less noise we make, the less thumping, chest beating we do, the quieter we become, then we line ourselves, we get ourselves into alignment with the right intention of meditation. Not to argue. If we argue, we're just putting more noise and therefore less access to the radiance, to the awareness. So when something comes up, when a state of mind comes up, we know it's a temporary visitor in the mind. We don't get excited when there's a temporary visitor. Have you ever had a temporary visitor at your house? They stay for one day. You put up with them. Right? You don't say, damn you, uh, right? Just, you go, okay, you accommodate them, you be the best host you can, and then they're gone the next day. So too, when states of mind show up in us, we don't make it into a problem. They're just temporary visitors. And they don't need to disturb the atmosphere of the house. They don't need to disturb the range of quietude. And they can come and do their thing and play loud music and do all the different intense and contracted ways that they live. And still the house, the space of the house holds them very nicely. And the next day they're gone out the back door and the space of the house continues. And it's with that intentionality that we start looking at our own mind. Not with trying to shuffle these states of mind to get better ones in there. Because any state of mind, no matter how precious it seems to us in the moment, is one, a temporary visitor, and two, blocks that intrinsic awareness. What we really want. It's momentarily, it may be momentarily satisfying, and that it gives us a feeling tone 
of calm or peace or pleasure. But because it's temporary, it's not going to last. So how much can I invest in it? And secondly, I've, some of us have touched this greater space that holds much more fulfillment than any temporary state of mind could possibly hold. And therefore, I'm just, I'll just be present with it. And it then goes on its own. The next one comes, presence on its own. Then there's a moment of quietude in which there's only presence. And we begin to sense that quietude as being intrinsic to ourselves. We begin to sense that this quietude is innate. And it's the states of mind that we have so long chased, so relished. We've devoted our lives to having or obtaining or conditioning states of mind into ourselves when there's something much more relevant, much more complete and content. Not within the state of mind that's in transition, but innately within ourselves. Every once in a while I receive an email or a letter that I just, uh, from a student that I just, um, that sends, um, that makes my heart warm. It's one of the true fulfilling ways a teacher um, uh, gets rewards from uh, his or her work as a teacher is to see the student grow. It's true modita. It's, there, we get nothing out of it, but we love the fact, and I, to every teacher that I know, says it the same way. Just, your heart just, there's just joy to see somebody else grow, to see us grow. And so I got this letter from a student, and it's this, um, it was a longer uh, email, but here I'm just going to read two paragraphs in it. She says, I find myself in circumstances of utter mystery. If there is an explanation, I am not privy to it. But I am privy to this moment as I perceive it. This moment that has color and form and texture. When I give this miraculous moment my full attention, it doesn't require a story. I don't need to understand it. I get to be here for it, to participate or to simply witness. When I leave the story and enter life, real life happening now, I disappear. Then there is nothing but abundance. It is more than enough. I am 37 years old and I'm, I am a space through which life can pass. When it pours through these particular filters, this body, this mind, it comes out with the animation and painfulness and hopefulness and love and confusion of humanity. It comes through like it always did, only I'm finally learning how to relax and make myself invisible, to take a little less credit and a little less blame. May that be all of our story. Can we sit for a moment or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.